If I were to quiz you this morning and ask you to name the four Gospels, I'm guessing most of you could do that, right? Can you say them? Hey, that was quick. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. Now, if I were to go a little bit further and ask you to name the first five books of the New Testament, could you do that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Very good. Now, you know that the Gospels tell the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But what about Acts? What is Acts all about? How does it fit in with the rest? Well, Acts was written by Luke as sort of a sequel to his gospel. This is what happened after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The full title of the book, as it appears in most Bibles, is The Acts of the Apostles. That's a rather lackluster title, if you ask me. Especially when you consider the wonderful, miraculous, amazing things that take place in this book. These stories really deserve something more catchy, something like the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit unleashed on the world. Too much? Well, okay. How, how, maybe something like amazing acts of faith. Something to let you know that these are no ordinary acts that we're talking about. And this is no ordinary book. Amazing Acts is the title that we're using this summer as we look at a number of these amazing stories of faith from the book of Acts. Stories of what happened in the first few decades following the resurrection. How the followers of Jesus were transformed from a small ragtag group of confused and frightened disciples into a spirit-filled miracle-working movement of thousands boldly spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. It all started in Jerusalem. That was where Jesus told his disciples to wait just before he ascended into heaven. Wait there for the promise of the Father, he told them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so they waited just as he commanded them. And the Holy Spirit came just as he had promised. We heard that story last week on Pentecost Sunday, how the Holy Spirit filled the house where the disciples were gathered, appearing as a flame above each one's head, giving them all the ability to proclaim the good news in all of the languages of the people gathered in Jerusalem that day. The result of that miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that the church grew by 2,600% in one day. The end of Acts 2 says of these 3,000 new believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Furthermore, it tells us that the believers shared everything in common, selling their possessions, distributing to anyone in need. It says they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. That is a picture of the church in its earliest days. It was not a bunch of separate families living their individual lives with their private possessions and then coming together for worship once a week. The first Christians did life together. They shared everything with one another. They ate their meals together. They said their prayers together. No doubt they worked alongside one another and faced all of life's challenges together. 
They gathered at the temple daily. Remember, these first Christians were all Jewish. They were accustomed to going to the Jewish temple for prayer, and they continued to do so. Except now when they went, they were not taking animal sacrifices with them. Jesus had done away with that. Instead, they gathered at the temple with other Christians to pray in the name of Jesus. That's what Peter and John were doing in our passage for today from the beginning of Acts chapter 3. Or rather, it's what they were on their way to do, but they got interrupted on the way. Much as Jesus often got interrupted on his way from one place to another by someone in need asking him for help. But when people interrupted Jesus, asking him for his help, they usually had some indication, inclination of who he was. Perhaps they didn't understand that he was the Messiah. They certainly didn't know him as Savior or Son of God. But they knew his reputation as a miracle worker, and they were asking a miracle for themselves. Not so in this case. The man sitting by the beautiful gate of the temple probably had no idea who Peter and John were. To him, they were just two men, like the hundreds of other men who passed by each day on their way into the temple. And he wasn't asking them for a miracle, just some spare change. He asked them for alms, is what the Bible said. Almsgiving to to poor beggars was a well-established practice in the Jewish faith. There weren't really any community programs that you could give your money to expecting them to take care of the poor. It was up to each individual to help wherever they could. And they were expected to help wherever they could. Almsgiving was something that was obligatory in their faith. And what better place to remind people of their religious obligation to the poor than right outside the temple where they were on their way in to pray. This man, this beggar who was at the gate of the temple, were told that he was lame from birth. He really had no other way to care for himself. But he obviously had people that cared about him. The Bible says there were people who would carry him there each day and lay him at the gate of the temple where he could ask for alms from those entering for prayer. That's all that he was asking from Peter and John that day. Toss a few coins into the cup and he would be happy. But Peter and John didn't have any coins to toss in the cup. Now, I will confess, when I'm going, going out, going to an area where I know that there are likely to be people asking for money, I sometimes intentionally leave my cash at home. That way, when somebody does ask me for something, I can say, sorry, I don't have any. And I have a clear conscience because I don't have any on me. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It's what I do. That's not what Peter and John were up to that day. They did not purposely leave their money at home so that they wouldn't have to give alms when they got to the temple. They truly did not have any money. They had left the only real profession they had ever known three years earlier when Jesus told them, lay down your nets and come follow me. Now they were part of a community where people just took care of one another. If Peter and John did have any money ever, it was because of others giving alms to them. They had no money to give. But here's the funny thing about these two. They had the perfect excuse 
the perfect excuse to say, sorry, don't have any, and walk on by. They didn't even have to make eye contact with this guy. But they did not avoid his eyes, and they did not walk on by. It's what I would have done. It's not what they did. Listen to this intriguing, amazing, perhaps even baffling phrase from verse 4. Peter looked intently at him, as did John. Peter looked intently at him, as did John. I usually avoid eye contact with strangers as much as possible, especially when they're asking for something that I know I don't have or don't want to give. If I don't look at them, I, I can pretend that I didn't notice them. I can pass on by as if they're not even there. Peter looked. And this isn't like Peter glancing over real quick and catching the man's eye by accident. No, Peter looked intently at him, as did John. And then Peter does something even more astounding. He says, look at us. No, no, no. What, what are you doing, Peter? This is not how you're supposed to act around strangers who are begging for money. Look at us, Peter said. He's inviting an interaction. He's beginning a conversation. He's encouraging an intimacy of relationship, a sign of compassion, humanity. The man must have thought in that moment that he had hit the mother load. He didn't know who these two men were, but he knew that they were special. Most people walked on by, some threw him some change, some didn't, but hardly any of them looked him in the eye, and if they did by chance, they looked away just as quickly. Now he has two men stooping down to his level. The Bible doesn't say that they were stooping down, but I'd imagine they had to have been stooping down at this point, right? Perhaps even on a knee. Two men stooping down on his level, looking him intently in the eye, showing compassion in their hearts, revealing the concern of their souls. And one of them says, look at us. Surely these two men are about to give him more than he's ever received before. Maybe even enough that he can stay home and not have to beg for a few days. That's exactly what verse 5 tells us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But then Peter said something that must have caused the man's heart to break for a moment. I have no silver or gold. You have no silver or gold? Then why are you looking at me? Why are you talking to me? Why are you wasting my time and raising false expectations? Only to dash my hopes? Only to crush my dreams? What kind of person does something like that? But Peter didn't stop there. No sooner had the man's heart begun to sink than Peter went on, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. What was Peter talking about? This man was born lame. He had never walked in his life. And now this man he's never met before invokes the name of someone he's never heard of before and tells him to stand up and walk. But Peter wouldn't let the man just sit there 
Wondering at the ludicrous nature of his words, Peter doesn't even give the man time to contemplate whether he wants to try walking or not, and if he does, how he might go about trying, seeing as he's never done it before in his life. Not leaving any time for reflection or doubt, Peter reaches down, grabs the man by his right hand, and pulls him up to his feet. And now here he is, this man who's never stood on his own two legs before in his life, and all of a sudden he's standing And not only standing, he's walking, and pretty soon he's running and jumping and leaping and praising God. And the passage goes on, all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What a powerful testimony to not turning away from someone simply because we don't have what it is they're asking for in the moment. Perhaps we have something even better to give. What Peter and John gave this man through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus was worth far more than the few days' wages the man was hoping for. What Peter and John revealed in this exchange was the very majesty and glory and power of God right there outside the beautiful gate of the temple. The beautiful gate. In the Mishnah, it's called the Gate of Nicanor, named after the wealthy Alexandrian who sponsored its ornate construction. It was also known as the Corinthian Gate because it was made out of expensive Corinthian bronze. Other writings from the New Testament era detail its excellent craftsmanship and its ornate design. It was plated with gold and silver and was larger than all the other temple gates. The magnificence of this particular gate was intended to glorify God, reminding the faithful as they walked through the beautiful gate into the temple that they were approaching the very presence of God. The Old Testament passage we heard this morning from the book of Ezekiel describes an eschatological vision of the temple in which the east gate, which is in the same position as the beautiful gate, is especially holy. In Ezekiel's vision of this future perfect temple, the east gate is kept locked all through the week. Only the prince can go through the gate, and only on certain days. Again, it's a vision of this entryway as not simply a passage from outside to inside, but a gateway between human and divine, a gateway to God. Contrast that, the beauty of this magnificent, grand, holy structure, Contrast that with the image of the man lying right outside the gate. He was the opposite of everything that the beautiful gate represented. He was poor. He was lame. He was outcast and unwanted. There was nothing holy about him. To all human appearances and by common societal standards, he was worthless. But this story from Acts shows that the glory of God is revealed not in the beautiful gate of the temple, but in a helpless man that others had looked past and walked by for years.
The beauty and majesty of God shone forth not in Corinthian bronze overlaid with silver and gold, but in a compassionate encounter, in miraculous love, in an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus Christ. For centuries, the Jews have been accustomed to going inside the temple to find God. That's why even Peter and John were going through the beautiful gate that day to approach God in prayer inside the temple. But when Peter called on the name of Jesus and lifted that man to his feet, God was found outside the temple that day. And all the people were filled with wonder and amazement. Wonder and amazement at a God who is not contained by an ornate building and costly materials. Wonder and amazement at a God who is not limited by human understanding and natural explanation. Wonder and amazement at a God who cares about a poor, lame man who other people simply tossed some coins at, but who Jesus laid down his life. Following this amazing act of healing, Peter preached his second sermon in the book of Acts. And just as he had in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter proclaimed the name of Jesus. His death and resurrection, his saving power now on offer to all people, bringing all people to wholeness, bringing all people into community, offering salvation to all, the grace of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus, the power of Jesus to overcome sin and death. That is where the glory of God is revealed. And that, my friends, that is what we have to offer the world. A world that needs it so badly. A world that needs him so badly. What I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Be saved and made whole. Amen.